I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. As an activist and advocate in Los Angeles, Karen Bass was pushing to reform the police, dealing with the crack epidemic, and contending with a mysterious virus that was killing gay men. Today, as a member of Congress and chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Bass successfully shepherded a police reform bill through the House. She's bringing the knowledge gained from the AIDS and crack epidemics to help her constituents during the coronavirus pandemic. And Bass has caught the attention of Joe Biden, as she's reportedly on the shortlist to be his vice presidential running mate. Ask her about that and about the inflection point we're in as a nation. Hear what she says right now. Congresswoman Karen Bass, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be back as always. So here's the strange thing. I thought you, it was just like yesterday you had been, you'd been on the podcast and I went back into my records and saw that you were last on the podcast in February of 2019. So, yeah, so many things have changed. Uh, You had just become, yes, (laughs) you had just become chair of the Congressional Black Caucus you are now in your your second year as chair. As you just said, you know, life has changed. So much has changed since the last time we spoke. So let's ramp up and just hit the ground running. One of the big things you are credited uh, with is putting together the George, Fo- George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and doing all of the, from the news stories I read, quiet diplomacy pulling it all together why why did you jump in and take a leadership role in putting pulling this together well first of all uh jonathan it's great to be with you it is scary to think that it's been so much time and just think of how live how our lives have changed but the entire world has changed you know um but the reason why i jumped in is because i chair the subcommittee and judiciary that covers this area, which is the subcommittee on crime, terrorism, and homeland security. And in that capacity, I was asked by the leadership to take the lead. The other role, of course, is chairing the Congressional Black Caucus. And in the wisdom of Speaker Pelosi, who knew that for decades, members of the Congressional Black Caucus have worked on these issues, members of the CBC, had authored uh, legislation. And so the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in some respects is a compilation of bills that CBC members have worked on for many, many years. And so, you know, my desire to always be collaborative and always to promote the Congressional Black Caucus, this was a perfect opportunity to do that. And then the, the main reason that any of us are talking about any legislation is because that murder was so egregious that it has led to daily protests that have not stopped since George Floyd was killed. It is the protest on the streets that led to the legislation being introduced and successfully passed. Now, one of the things about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that I found interesting was you actually got Republicans, some some Republicans, to vote for it. How, right. how did you do that in a time when Republicans and Democrats don't work, usually don't work together on anything, but especially something related to the police? Well, I think um, 
that it was a really big deal. I mean, it was three Republicans, but you know, the president had tweeted two days before and Jonathan, you know what happens when the president tweets. When he tweets and tells them not to do something, they are almost always uniformly in lockstep with whatever he says. But it actually was no small feat that we got all the Democrats. Because prior to George Floyd, prior to daily protests, I do not believe that all the Democrats would have been there because this is just simply not an issue that touches everyone. That's the whole point, right? And so many of my uh, Democratic colleagues, this was their first exposure to this issue. And I felt really terrific in the sense that the openness that I found on both sides of the aisle, really, to accept this issue. And Jonathan, we have seen so many people killed on cell phone video. There's nothing new about that. But, and, and after every single time, and you know this, they do polling. And black people say one thing and white people say the opposite. And this was different. You had 70% of America saying, we have a problem here. It was not just one incident. This is a systemic issue. And that is the first time. Even when we were having the hearings on the bill in the committee, when we were voting on the bill in committee, when we were voting on the bill on the floor, my Republican colleagues talked about everything under the sun but the content of the bill. They talked about Antifa. They talked about Mueller. I joke and say the only thing they didn't talk about is Hillary's emails and the bill, <laughs> which to me meant substantively there was not that much in disagreement. And so the, the action happens in the House. You, you get it passed. But then it goes to the Senate. Well, did it even get to the Senate? I mean, it passed, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, has he done anything with it? Have, I mean, have, there, have you had any conversations with folks on the Senate side to help move things along? Well, I will tell you that uh, the bill is over in the Senate, but you probably couldn't find Senator McConnell's desk because he has so many bills piled up on that desk of his <laughs> that he has done nothing with, over 200 bipartisan bills, over 400 bills in total. He probably has no room left on his desk. So it is over there. But yes, uh, the senators are talking with each other. Uh, I've spoken with Tim Scott. I'm continuing to speak with my Republican colleagues in the House who continue to say that they want to see something done. But to me, it's never over till it's over. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did our work in the House. We could simply say, now it's over in the House. It's their problem. We're not going to think about it anymore. But, you know, I never view legislation that way. I'm not happy until it's implemented. Even a signature is not enough for me. When the bill is signed, I want to know what happens after that. And I want to know, did it work? Did it make a difference? Did it do what we intended? So uh, I've been working on this for so many decades. I'm not hardly going to let go now because just because we passed it in the House. I'm glad you brought that up. And just to be clear, you meant it's over in the Senate. You said over in the House, but over in the Senate. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to your point that you've been working on this for decades um, and we have seen this for decades. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Rodney King being sort of the first of the grainy videos um, where we saw a black man being beaten 
by the police. Given your, and that happened, I mean, that's in your district, right? It's in my city. In, yeah, right. It's, it's in your city. Um, but you've lived and breathed, breathed this for a long time. Are you, um, are you disheartened by the fact that we're still talking about this decades or this generation's Rodney Kings? Um, it, or are you hopeful in that there are more people marching alongside you than there were 30 years ago? Well, I mean, a couple of things. And for your younger listeners, the reason why Rodney King was so important, we didn't have video cameras before Rodney King. <laughs> the technology didn't exist. And so that man who just happened to have his new video camera uh, in his door, in his window filming this, that was monumental because we had been working for years saying that this was happening. But every time there was a beating, Every time there was a killing, the police said the same thing. Basically, the person that was beat, the person that was killed deserved what they got. Um, if the police beat you up, they said you beat them up. And it was assault with a deadly weapon. And typically, if you got beat up, you got arrested. If you were killed, it was said that they were in fear of their life. Actually, the same thing they say now. The difference is, though, is that so much of it has been captured uh, on cell phone. But I think this time was so horrible. And it was horrible because the man was looking dead at the camera while he was murdering him. He was acting with complete impunity and he had his hand in his pocket. Like, I, you know, I'm just sitting here killing somebody. And then of course we find out later that he's had multiple, multiple complaints for excessive use of force and other uh, inappropriate, inappropriate things. Um, I am over the top hopeful. I am not frustrated because this is the first time, again, that the polling has changed, that white America finally sees that Black people, all millions of us, didn't just make this stuff up, that this is our life on a daily basis. But, you know, yes, I, when I went to George, George Floyd's uh, memorial service and I looked up and I saw the year he was born, that was the year I became involved in this issue. 47 years ago, Jonathan, so 20 years before Rodney King, I had been involved in this. But you know what? So what? Our ancestors have been, have been talking about this issue since policing started in the United States, which was during the period of enslavement. So my 47 years are nothing compared to the generations that this has gone on. I mean, a lot of lynchings were like this. Lynchings were done by police you know, either openly by police or after work <laughs> with a hood on. Uh, so our relationship with police as a community has tragically been consistent for hundreds of years. And I just want to be clear, we both chuckled about police lynching um, people, not ha-ha funny, but sort of a rueful laugh because there is enough documentation out there to show not only the involvement of law enforcement, both on duty and off duty, but also to my mind, which is the moral shocker, thousands of people who viewed the lynching of a black man or black woman or black children as entertainment in the town square, in front of courthouses. And, you know, I've often said 
the attics and basements of some of these homes in America are haunted. If you were to go and look and find what some of these folks might um, have simply because, you know, postcards were made of lynchings. Well, they advertise them ahead of time, like sporting events. On Sunday, we're going to come and burn to death, burn alive a Negro and uh, bring your picnic basket and come and do that. And then the postcards were after the effect, after the effect. Right. But they were advertised beforehand. You know, there's another. So this is a confluence of events that's happening um, vis-a-vis you and, and your life. So you were just saying, you know, you've been part of this issue in terms of police reform for 47 years. But also we're now in the middle of a global pandemic, a virus where there's no cure, there's no vaccine. Um, people are being infected and dying by the hundreds of thousands. And you were right in the middle of the of the AIDS epidemic early on. What what did you what did you see when AIDS hit? Well, first of all, I, I was a student when this strange pneumonia that was killing gay men uh, was first on the scene and we didn't really know what it was. And then by the time I graduated, we knew it was AIDS, but we still didn't know how it was transmitted. And I have so much empathy for the healthcare workers today because when we, during the time I worked in the emergency room, we weren't even trained to wear gloves. I mean, we were trained to do procedures without gloves. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We were afraid every single day that we would get infected. When we understood that it could be transmitted by needles, uh, then we were terrified of a needle stick. And I so remember when my colleagues would accidentally stick themselves and then they lived in fear for months as to whether or not they would get it. But then watching so many people die in front of me, I mean, you know, and the healthcare workers didn't want to take care of them. And so there, that was, there was terrible discrimination that was going on. And what changed AIDS was a social movement. If you think about what is going on in the streets around policing, that is exactly what happened with AIDS. It was an incredible movement called ACT UP. They got involved in, in civil disobedience. They copied the civil rights movement. They had massive protests. We had a president who said that, um, you know, this is really nothing. We had elected officials that said this is because people were gay. This is what God, how God was punishing folks. Um, and that went on for years. And, um, and then finally, in the 90s, they came up with the cocktail. So, you know, AIDS arrived on the scene in the very early 80s. So we went a good 10 years before, um, actually, no, I don't think it was quite that long, um, five or six years until we knew how it was transmitted. But the cocktail wasn't invented until uh, the early 90s. Right. And so now, given that experience that you had with um, living through the the onset of HIV AIDS, HIV AIDS epidemic, now we're in the middle of coronavirus and we're seeing to a certain extent the federal government and the federal response being unbelievably inadequate. What what lessons are there to be learned for this crew in the White House now about how a nation is supposed to react 
to a pandemic that is ravaging its own its own citizens? Well, uh, frankly, I think what lessons can America learn? I have no hope that this administration will learn anything because the person at the top has no interest in learning anything. He has the experts around him, but he is going off of his gut, not off of science because he doesn't believe in science. You have today Dr. Fauci saying, be careful, we're not out of this. People are getting by the, by the thousands infected every day and by the hundreds dying every day. You know, Jonathan, at least once a day, but typically more than once a day, I stop and think about the fact that over 131,000 Americans are dead in four months. And this man has not stopped a beat. I don't think he has thought about any of them. He probably knows no names and could care less. But the lesson here for the country to understand is it is 100% about leadership. What people don't remember is, is that we could have had a pandemic with Ebola. President Obama set the example of what to do. He galvanized the entire world. The world came together and Ebola stayed in three countries. They had predicted that there would be a million people who died. I think it was 16,000 that died, and obviously that's too many. But Ebola didn't even spread in Africa. Two people died from Ebola in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that it's the same thing. This is, this is a different type of epidemic. But the thing about it is, is that with this epidemic, I don't believe in any way, shape, or form these many people needed to die. Do you know the population of the United States is 330 million? The population of India is 1.6 billion. I talked to the Indian ambassador a few weeks ago. At that point in time, I think 12,000 Indians died. 12,000 to 131,000, 330 million to 1.6 billion. There is no excuse for this in our country. You have... Um, uh... A few, I guess, a few months to go as chair as chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus because there'll be a new chair when there's the, the the new Congress. What more do you want to do in the time that you have left? Well, you know what it is all about COVID and it is all about systemic racism. Those are the two issues. Now, having said that, we still have a census that we have to make sure that we're counted. And in a hundred and how many days? Twenty days? We have an election. And, you know, I'm tired of saying this is the most important election of our lifetime. Earlier this year, I was saying, if we don't get it right this election, we're going to be in a mess for two generations because of the judges. Now I say this election is a matter of life and death. And it really is. When you have 131,000 people dead, this election is a matter of life and death. And so making sure that people turn out to vote making sure that people follow the census, and then making sure that um, we have, I mean, we do have a strategy. We know what to do around COVID. There needs to be a concentrated intervention in areas where there's a disproportionate death rate. So I will continue to work on that. I will continue to work on the legislation around policing but we do understand that the problems with policing is just one manifestation of systemic racism. So I might only have six months left, but that's a real big agenda. 
It is. But let me get you on systemic racism um, before I move on to the to my next question. And that is, again, given what you've seen and the demonstrations and white people suddenly woke on mass about this. Do you think this is a real a real turning point when it comes to doing something about systemic racism or is this a fad moment and we're just going to slide back into slide back into that old groove Jonathan when have you heard people talk about systemic racism never <laughs> it's true i mean this started as a police murder this morphed into a human rights issue internationally did you know that all 54 nations in africa went to the United Nations and said we needed to talk about racism in the United States and police violence. I mean, people protesting around the world, 50 states in the country. Now people are saying this is a bigger issue than policing. People are looking at our own history with the whole thing around the statues. I want to see the statues removed. I don't want to see them vandalized like that because I think getting them removed through a process would allow for public education to take place at the same time. And so I would like to see a process to remove them. This is a seminal moment in our country. Now, it's up to us as to whether we squander it. So I don't think this is just a fad. I think this is profound. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that this moment is not squandered. Your father was a letter carrier. Yep. Your mom was a homemaker. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think they would be thinking if they to to know that their daughter is not only the former speaker of the California Assembly, now a sitting member of Congress, now the the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, but also talked about as a potential vice president of the United States. (laughs) I just have to sit back and chuckle because to me, it's just surreal. And you know, the sad thing is, is that uh, my parents didn't live to see any of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they, they knew that their daughter was always a community activist, was always involved in politics you know, they were always scared to death, by the way. They never wanted to see me run for office. They were just always worried that I was going to get hurt in the process. So I think that they would be uh, extremely proud. But my brothers and I talk about that all the time, the fact that they're not here. Uh, we certainly had all of those discussions when I was sworn in as speaker uh, as well. So it's just an, an incredible moment uh, in my life. And Jonathan, if I can do anything... <laughs> to help us get this country back on track. I mean, the healing that needs to take place from what we have gone through for the last three and a half years, the idea of being able to jump in and and do whatever I can over COVID, the idea of capturing this moment around race and making sure that it means something um, is what I've lived for my whole life, an incredible opportunity. So I'm very excited about where I am now, the work that I'm doing right now. Now, I know I'm not even going to ask you all the obvious questions because um, I know what you're going to say. 
But my colleague, George Will, wrote a column that I didn't even know was coming. I saw the headline and I was like, wait, what? He wrote a column with the headline, the woman Biden should pick to lead us to calmer days. And under that headline is a picture of you. George Will, for those who don't know, is a he's a conservative columnist. And he wrote this line that I just, among two, that took my breath away. He writes about you. Her impeccably progressive credentials would soothe her party's fermenting left wing. Her even-keeled disposition. She's not someone who bristles, says an admirer who has, quote, never heard her raise her voice would appeal to the large majority of Americans who've had a surfeit of bristling from both ends of the political spectrum. You've been in politics a long time. I'm sure you you knew who George you know who George Will is. Did you ever think ever in your life you would get a column from him about you no. that was positive? No, no, no. I was very extremely humbled uh, and excited. I, I thought it was very, very, very nice. And, you know, I did have an opportunity to meet him once. I had done the Bill Maher show. And when I came off of my segment, I saw him and I walked over to him and greeted him. I'm, you know, he just looked at me like, oh, who's this lady? But I just said, you know, that I had followed him for years and, and admired him uh, because, you know, my politics might be different than him, but he's thoughtful. And, and it reminds you of back in the day when you could have differences of opinion, but they were thoughtful differences, not differences where people are running around trying to push each other's button and being divisive intentionally so they can rally, you know, their particular base. So I'm, uh, I feel very honored by what he wrote. Let me end on the other, the other thing that George Will wrote um, that, that I actually like. Now, get you to reflect on this. It was the very last paragraph where he writes, Bass will be 67 on January 20, when Biden will be 78. Biden-Bass would be the nation's oldest winning ticket, transitional leadership to get the world's oldest party and the world's oldest democracy to calmer days. <laughs> well, you know, again, I, I feel uh, uh, very honored by that uh, as well. I just feel like the nation needs to heal. The nation does need to be calm. I mean, we have been traumatized multiple times a day for the last three and a half years. And so having, having leaders that are calm, that are trying to bring the country together consciously, everybody, I think is, is what is needed right now. And I'm excited about the vice president. I feel like I know who he is. It's not like I have some longstanding personal relationship with him. I don't. But I think that people know he's authentic. They know he's sincere. And he doesn't have any reason except for to try to bring the country back together. And, um, and so whatever I can do to help him win, and help him to be a successful president, I'm going to do everything I can. The world depends on us, Jonathan. Karen Bass, chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, congresswoman from Los Angeles, and maybe potential vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party for vice president of the United States. Thank you very, very much for coming back to the podcast. 
Thank you for having me on. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this show and other Washington Post podcasts so we can keep making things you want to hear. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. All one word. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you want to hear from us. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey.